DC Beyond the Thunder podcast with your host, Kurt Squires, with Greg Ferguson and Eric Deal. For those about to talk, we salute you. Thank you for tuning in once again to ACDC Beyond the Thunder, a podcast that spotlights the influence that this very band has had on our culture in truly remarkable ways. From well-known actors and athletes, comedians to CEOs, professional wrestlers to decorated war heroes, and in today's case, even authors. And sorry, listeners, to tell you that it's not Stephen King, fellow ACDC fan Stephen King, but believe us, We're going to keep bothering that guy. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Kurt Squires. Today's guest includes a posthumous interview with author Philip Carlo, carefully extracted and curated from the archives by my good friend Greg Ferguson and brilliantly engineered by Mr. Eric Kielb. Philip Carlo was an American journalist and best-selling biographer whose non-fictional work included The Iceman, Gas Pipe Confessions of a Mafia Boss, The Butcher, and the book that we'll be discussing in great depth today, The Night Stalker, The Life and Crimes of Richard Ramirez and True Story of America's Most Feared Serial Killer, a book that the LA Times, People Magazine, New York Daily News and Publishers Weekly unanimously agreed that this is a chilling read. Now, we want to caution our listeners that although our podcast predominantly focuses on how ACDC has inspired us in so many wonderful ways and positive ways, this particular episode touches upon the negative side. And we do not in any way, shape, or form want to exacerbate this story. It's, it's simply a moment in time that ACDC were unfortunately associated with a serial killer, a man by the name of Richard Ramirez, who was a rapist, kidnapper, child abuser, burglar, Satan worshiper, all-around menacing figure in American history, who was eventually placed on death row for 24, 25 years or so before his death from cancer in prison in 2013. Yeah, this episode is definitely taking a dark turn, Kurt. I don't think we're going to solve any crimes today, but this is surely going to be our spookiest episode to date. Maybe this is going to launch us into the world of true crime episodes, huh? That's right, Greg. That's absolutely right. Um, For all intents and purposes, Philip would have loved this episode. And unfortunately, our guest today, author Philip Carlo, who suffered from ALS, commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease, was bound to a wheelchair and breathing only with a respirator during our interview in his apartment in New York City, would sadly pass away not long after this very discussion. Yeah, ALS is an ugly disease. I think we were both taken back with his condition at the time, but also quite shocked about how excited he was to talk about a serial killer. And of course, ACDC. He definitely was ready for us when we got there. He wanted to start talking right away. And I think this interview was really the highlight of his week. Yeah, and it kind of adds to the drama. And, and Philip was very gracious with his time, as was his wife, Laura, especially under the circumstances as he was literally facing death. We discuss everything from his own life growing up in New York City to becoming an author, and most importantly, his take on the whole connection between Richard Ramirez and the killer's infatuation with ACDC. Yeah, and as an aside, you'll hear Philip talk about his book, The Night Stalker, as potentially in the works to become a feature film. Well, it actually did become a feature film following his death in 2016. Um, It starred Lou Diamond Phillips, 
and it was also followed up by a four-part Netflix series. Okay, Greg, Eric, let's jump into the archives, take you back to unveil this exclusive, never-before-heard interview with author Philip Carlo discussing The Night Stalker. Philip, after doing a considerable amount of research, there seems to be a striking amount of similarities between you and Richard Ramirez, which makes me wonder if that's what attracted you to write the story in the first place. Although you were raised on the streets of Brooklyn and Ramirez in El Paso, Texas, specifically, both of you experienced some pretty horrific things growing up. A 13-year-old Ramirez would witness his own cousin murder his wife right in front of him, a cousin who was apparently a decorated Green Beret combat veteran who would show a young Ramirez Polaroids of his gruesome atrocities of rape and murder during the Vietnam War. And at just 15 years old, you would witness a very close friend shot to death in broad daylight by hitmen from a crime family, a world that you would eventually dive into and get shot in the head yourself with a 22 caliber pistol at the age of 17. Citing these remarkable traumatic experiences that you both suffered early on, how is it that you were able to break out of this vicious cycle and able to save yourself, whereas Richard Ramirez would go on to harness that violence and eventually become a serial killer. The question of whether, why a person like Ramirez chose the path he chose in life, and why a person like me, who had a lot of difficulties as a child, saw a lot of violence, was shot in the head at a point in time, saw a friend of mine killed. Wow. It's very simple. Richard is a psychotic serial killer. I'm a psychotic writer. <laughs> I like that. I mean, That's great. I've managed to marshal my psychosis, my antisocial feelings and behavior positively. Mm -hmm. I write about crime. Right. I don't commit it as such. But I was headed in that direction as a youth. Luckily, I turned another way. I grew my hair long and became a hippie and started dropping acid. Richard grew his hair long, dropped acid, and started killing people. Wow, even more similarities between you two. So dropping acid for you was a trippy coping mechanism. What was the motivation for Ramirez cultivating a strong interest for Satanism? I mean, the occult and eventually murder. For Richard, very important to understand, as with all serial killers, murder is an aphrodisiac. Murder is sex. Richard's an extreme sexual sadist, as was Jack the Ripper, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, they all come from the same place, the same mold, the same womb. Right. And what they're all obsessed with is one thing. Murder. Murder. Yeah. Sex and murder. Violence and sex. Wherever a serial killer goes, when they leave, they're semen. You mentioned getting shot, which is terrifying. But while you were recovering, your passion for books at that time ultimately steered you from what inevitably might have become a criminal path. 
by reading books from the likes of Steinbeck, Hemingway, Dickens, and after a brief stint as a real estate agent, you decided to become a professional writer. One of your first books was about a killer in a hospital ward, an idea you got while hospitalized recovering from your head wound because a woman was actually murdered in that very hospital that you were in. Um, that was followed by a lot of rejection letters, which must have been disheartening for you. But um, then there was a book called Stolen Flower in 1986, and Universal Pictures optioned that book for Robert De Niro, which ultimately fell through. So you're looking for your first big break. What led you down the path to write the story about Richard Ramirez? Was it your agent? Were you living in L.A. at the time? I was not living in California in 1985 when Ramirez scared the shit out of everybody. I was here in New York City. I heard about peripherally him on CNN, the Night Stalker, but it didn't mean anything to me. Years later, I was looking around to write about a serial killer. I wanted to delineate the arc between an abused child and a full-blown serial killer. Was there a link? Is there a link between abuse as a child and later psychotic behavior? Is it nature or nature that makes the serial killer? I wondered. And there was no real data, no way to really find out, except to go into the jungle and start asking the premier Predators. Ramirez was right up there. I wrote him a letter. He answered. A couple of weeks later, I went to San Francisco and I met him. Wow. And when I met him, I knew I was on to something much larger than a serial killer story as such. There was a whole backstory, an amazing beginning, and an amazing ending. How was it an amazing ending? The amazing ending was that when he was caught, women were lining up at the jails to show him their titties. Oh, this was amazing. Unreal. Here he is, a sex killer, and women are popping out of the woodwork, and they want to fuck him. They will fuck him. They just had the chance. That blows my mind. The, the, the beginning is his childhood the building blocks that contributed to what he became. It was an epic tale that went from A to Z. It wasn't just M for murder. There was a lot more. That's right. You're, in your book, someone on the jury who actually convicted him falls in love, moves closer to the prison. Did she, I mean, ends up, did she end up marrying him while he was in prison? I mean, this blows my mind. And then he ends up getting groupies. Can you tell us a little bit more about the twisted storyline and the appeal of this guy, even though he's a convicted murderer? Apparently, Ramirez had some kind of atheistic appeal to women. And it, it, it reigns the whole gamut. Bank tellers, secretaries, post office workers, strippers, hookers, Satanists, they all vie for his attention. 
even one of the jurors got the hots for him. Right. During the 14-month trial, she started sending him love notes. Her name was Sidney Hayden. Never in trouble in her entire life. Worked in the bank. But she thought he was the hottest thing since the wheel. Crazy. He became her sunrise and her sunset. She fell in love with him. Wow. Apparently, his those high cheekbones and big lips and that quaff he has <laughs> is very appealing. Come on. But I, I'm really joking. What What is appealing about him is the fact that he's so defiant. Right. So in your face, this is who I am. He is, in reality, the ultimate bad boy. And that appeals to women. Huh. He took the system, he took the American dream, and he cut it to pieces and defied somebody to stop him, defied somebody to question him openly, publicly. And that's what drew the woman to him, his attitude, a bad attitude. Incredible. Ramirez's highly publicized home invasion and murder crime spree terrorized the residents of greater L.A. and later the residents of the San Francisco Bay Area from June of 1984 until August of 85. And he used a, a wide variety of weapons, including handguns, knives, machete, tire iron, and a, even a claw hammer. In your book, you say that a younger Ramirez moved in with his older sister and her husband, um, which you called an obsessive peeping Tom, who would take Ramirez along on his nocturnal exploits. Is this how the name Night Stalker came about? I got it. And initially, in the beginning, when they first noted the horrendous crimes, they called the Night Stalker the Valley Intruder, then the Valley Stalker, and finally the press dubbed him the Night Stalker, which was quite literally the perfect name for what he did and how he did it. He literally stalked the night. He hid in the night. He became part of the night. He slept all day and came out when it just started getting dark out. He never went out before midnight. His favorite time to strike was two o'clock in the morning because he knew people were in a deeper sleep. There was that kind of forethought and premeditation to what he did. A lot more clever and diabolical than it seems on the surface. Right. And, and you were personally interviewing this killer six hours a day for over a hundred hours, spending weeks and weeks interviewing acquaintances, family. The cops. Right, the cops. Uh, right up through his conviction in 1989 of 13 counts of murder, five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. The way you told this story is so chilling. And, and thank you for signing our book, by the way. Uh, I have to be honest, I only made it about halfway through before having to stop. The only reason being, it freaked me out too much. Your writing style is so vivid, so detailed, 
it made me feel like I was riding shotgun with Ramirez, almost like I was his accomplice. And it was honestly too much for me. I, I got to ask, were, were there times where you had to take a step back because you were too affected by your own material, like I was? My job as a writer is to chronicle what he did, tell what he did. I, as a writer, have, don't have the luxury in reality of having feelings. If I did have feelings, I couldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole. It's, it's so horrible. You have to devoid yourself of its reality and make your own reality. And your own, own reality is a page a day, 10 pages a day, a line at a time. It doesn't all hit you at once. It's piecemeal. Yeah. So you don't feel it like a concentrated shot. It's a little, a little, a little, a little. But it took three years to write the book. Wow. For that reason. Well, but your descriptions of what Ramirez did to his victims are so gruesome and so horrendous. From the personal accounts of Ramirez himself, there must have been a part of you that said, what am I writing here? I mean, this is not fiction. This is overwhelmingly real. This happened. No, I never felt overwhelmed by it. I never felt personally distraught or emotionally upset. In reality, there was one time, two times that I cried with this project. One when I was writing about Mabel Bell, who was a 92-year-old woman that had been bound with wire to the bed for three days before she was discovered. Awful. He had pulled the wire tight and stopped the circulation and her extremities swell, swelled, turned purple, black, and burst. She suffered beyond the pale. She suffered beyond what you can imagine. She was alive and they finally found her like that. And when I wrote about that, I cried. The other time I cried was when I interviewed Ramirez's mother and she was essentially innocent, but she gave birth to the beast. Mm -hmm. And when I interviewed her, the first question I said is, tell me what Richard was like as a child. And she looked at the ceiling, she started crying and she said, quote, when Richard was a little boy, he used to love to dance to the radio. And she's cried. And I cried. I cried. It's okay. I still get emotional about it. I cried. Take your time. Take your time. Take all the time you need. I cried for the little boy. I cried for what he might have been. You say that his mother remembers her son dancing and enjoying specific music. Let's transition to his favorite band, ACDC. And a childhood friend corroborates this, as did Ramirez himself. When you interviewed him in prison, he referenced that he loved ACDC. 
he said Highway to Hell was his favorite album and specifically called out the song Night Prowler as his essential soundtrack. What was your conversation like when you met with him in prison when it came to the topic of ACDC? I remember you, you talking to him specifically about ACDC. Well, ACDC, Richard, first of all, Richard was obsessed with music, always was. Loved music, heavy metal, things with fast driving rhythms. While he was out and about, he always had on a Walkman. He was always listening to music, turned all the way up. He even entered people's houses with a Walkman on, if you can believe it. Crazy. He loved ACDC. He saw Night Prowler. He felt that had somehow been written about him. Wow. And if you listen to the lyrics, they're so in tune to what he did. And he felt encouraged by it. He thought of the ACDC as princes, as royalty, as very wise men. And he felt if they could write lyrics like that, like those in Night Prowler, they were encouraging him. They were saying, wink, wink, it's okay. No. And he did what he did, remorseless with it. It was okay. Let me set the stage or establish a little bit of a backstory here about the song Night Prowler, the last song off ACDC's album, Highway to Hell, which was released in 1979, and the very last song we'll ever hear Bon Scott sing before his untimely death just a few months later. Um, This song becomes my favorite ACDC track of all time, by the way. I liken it to the closest thing to Stephen King on vinyl. Fortunately, Ramirez did not ruin the song for me. I love it just as much as the first time I heard it. So I just had to make that clear. Uh, So in 1985, six years later, ACDC released Fly on the Wall, the fourth album with new singer Brian Johnson. Unfortunately, the band gets tied into these Ramirez killings, specifically because in March of 85, Ramirez leaves behind this ACDC hat that he was wearing at the scene of a crime. Uh, He's obviously a huge fan of the band, and he felt that song, as you said, has this calling card for him. The crime is the walk-in killings. The suspect, Richard Ramirez. And the question is, did the band ACDC drive him onto a personal highway to hell? The night was March 17th when the walk-in killer struck in Rosemead, murdering Dale Okazaki in her new condominium. The killer left behind a baseball cap embroidered with the logo ACDC. And after the police release a photo of this ACDC hat from the crime scene, they're hoping to get some leads. And they finally catch him 
three days before ACDC launched their tour, which causes these religious groups to come out of the woodwork to try to ban their shows. It was reported, actually, that when Ramirez was arrested and actually beaten by a mob of angry Los Angelinos in the streets, that he was wearing an ACDC shirt. And you also have to remember that this is when the PMRC was established. So these Washington wives were cracking down on supposedly demonic evil bands like ACDC. So now you have this religious group, groups, they're trying to ban their shows. They're, They're getting death threats. The band's getting death threats. Hotel chains are refusing them on the road. Radio stations aren't playing their tunes. Record shops aren't selling their albums. They even cancel a show in, in Costa Mesa, in California. And things are getting really messy for ACDC. Let's play you this Vintage Entertainment Tonight interview with Angus Young from back in 1985. I mean, you get it, your inspiration from something. In the case of that song, it's been completely taken out of context. The story come from, mainly there was a guy that used to steal underwear off people's laundry lines. And that inspired, well, it wasn't Brian that wrote the list, it was a guy, Bon Scott, since dead. That inspired him to go out and write a song about that. That's what Night Prowler's about. That's what Night Prowler is about. So, Philip, what were your feelings about the song Night Prowler and how ACDC tried to distance themselves from this horrible association? What galls me is ACDC trying to cop a plea, trying to make it seem as though they didn't really write that song or homogenizing it, pasteurizing it. That is bullshit. The lyrics clearly indicate nightmare, bad intentions, rape, murder, tomb, shadows on on the blinds. I mean, we're not stupid. Fun and games, my ass. I don't think it's bad necessarily. I don't think it's good necessarily. I just want the truth to be told. When I write what I write, people say to me, you know, why do you write about bad guys? Why do you lionize killers? I'm not doing that. What I'm doing is telling the truth about the human condition and I'll take responsibility for it. I ain't gonna say I didn't write it. I ain't gonna say, oh, well, they're really nice guys. You're just reading it wrong, you know? And uh, they should be proud of that song. It's a great song. Yeah, it is a great song. It's also macabre and potentially violent. I mean, there's no getting around it. But I'm an author. Words are my business. And it's a a very well-written song. It's great. You know, cop to it, bros. But when you talk to Ramirez... Even he didn't subscribe to the fact that ACDC was responsible, but they were more of a soundtrack, like you said, with the Walkman. Um, You know, a lot of people say to me, did 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 the Night Stalker kill because of the Night Prowler or music, or did it make him worse? Listen, you cannot dance without music. Richard was dancing to what he heard. That's all. And he danced very well to it. That's all he was doing. Dancing to the music that was that was in the air. Except in his mind, I think the beat was much stronger. In his mind, he took what he heard 
much more literally. Right. What he said is, in a sense, the music reflected something he was feeling. And I think that's so, but more importantly, I think when he was on the freeways, speeding from one city to another, looking to kill, intent upon killing, those those kind of the jungle drums, the, what he was hearing, the beat was that. It was jungle drums encouraging war. This is war. It's me against them. I'm going to get them. Nothing can stop me. And nothing did stop him. Well, I'm kind of torn about how I feel about this because on one hand, I know that what ACDC were doing was tongue-in-cheek, sort of cartoonish. They're a fun band, and they'd never mean any harm. Even Malcolm Young once said something to the effect of, did you search his stomach for McDonald's? If you're a wacko, you're a wacko. Um, and on the other hand, it was a serious-looking album cover, uh, even for a 10-year-old like me. Even for ACDC standards, it was a serious-looking album cover with a serious album title, Highway to Hell, and honestly, some very serious and dark lyrics, even for Bond. Highway to Hell is a great title. I wish I had thought of it. That's the truth. I think it's exactly what Richard was doing, speeding on a highway to hell. He really feels that someday when he dies, he'll sit at the table with Satan. Satan's right hand. Having said that, as far as ACDC is concerned, I think it was more play acting than actuality. I don't know. Are they real? Do they practice as Satan? Do they kiss goats' asses? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Probably not. But I don't really think it matters. I think to a normal, civilized individual, that's just a marketing. Yeah. A means to an end. Uh, but to a psychotic, to somebody not playing with a full deck, it can completely mean something else. To me, it's all bullshit, basically. To Richard, it was... An anthem. An anthem. Yeah. You know, he's all ready to stand up, put his hand on his chest, and pledge to Satan. He's not pledging the United States. Yeah, that's right. I'll never forget the first time he appeared in court. He raised his hand up with a pentagram drawn on it, yelling, Hail Satan. That's dark, man. Besides the police discovering the hat and seeing that reported on the news, how did you know that Richard truly had such an affinity for ACDC? He told me. Can you recall for us? <coughs> can you recall for us that very night the police and the press linked ACDC to R Richard Ramirez? There was this incident, this horrible, terrible thing that happened. Richard was on the freeway and he spotted an attractive Latina woman driving. He started following her. He followed her to her home. He was wearing all black, black shoes, black socks, and a black cap. On the cap was ACDC. Right, right. When she closed her garage door, he was right there. He got out of his car, 
and very quietly snuck up to the garage and ducked in. When he, bound when he bent down to duck the garage door, the hat fell off. Okay. Later, there were two bodies. Sorry. Later, Maria Hernandez, the woman he followed, got away. Her roommate was shot in the head yeah. by the stalker and killed. Yeah. The cops found this hat. They knew it belonged to the murderer, but they didn't know anything about what was about to happen. It was just beginning. The monster was just showing himself, and they had this hat. So they started listening to ACDC. Of course. And thinking, maybe uh, this has something to do with it. Maybe he's a devil worshiper. But it was all maybes. They didn't really know anything. Maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> At that juncture, that's all it was. But it was just beginning. That, I remember that. That was the woman who put her keys up and saved her life deflecting a bullet by, you know, ricocheting off the keys, which is astounding. See, I made it that far in your book, Philip. Man, you're a lightweight. <laughs> no, but seriously, I am so What the impressed. fuck are you doing here? <laughs> I am so impressed with your writing style. But, you know, for someone like me, who's a fan of horror, who owns every Stephen King novel, uh -huh. you, you truly got me, man. That's amazing. You should read the book. All right, I promise to finish your book if you answer this question. Are you an ACDC fan, Philip. I wouldn't say I'm a fan of ACDC, but I like them. I think they're very talented. I take my hat off to them. I wouldn't necessarily go to one of the concerts. I think they're for kids more. Really? But you know, more power to them. I've never heard anyone say that they're for kids, but that, that's funny. But I guess it's kind of true. I was a kid when I fell in love with this band, and I suppose I haven't really left that stage. Obviously. You can't <laughs> right. read my book. <laughs> oh. Richard once said that a serial killer is created through, quote, a recipe of poverty, drugs, and child abuse, leading to an explosion. His father, who was an alcoholic, was prone to fits of anger that often resulted in physical abuse. I remember you, there was a chapter where Ramirez would seek escape by sleeping in a local cemetery as a kid. Um, do you feel like ACDC is still a part of that recipe? You know, it's, it's like, it's an interpretation. It's whose eyes we're talking about. I mean, I, I can't help but mentioning, thinking of, and feeling so sad because of John Lennon. Catcher in the Rye wasn't telling anybody to kill John Lennon. But to that prick, that fucking scumbag, whose balls should be cut off and stuck up his nose, it meant kill John Lennon. And he took away from us Beethoven. He stole the genius who was shining light in very dark world. So, if you're imbalanced, if you're mentally insane, yeah, books and films can all contribute to bad behavior. Bad behavior can become throwing an apple at the, at the, the screen, killing your neighbor, going out looking to tie up women. You get a movie like The Collector, 
where it's a woman, it's a man abducting a woman to keep her, that can play in a very bad way to certain types of individuals. But it all has to do with how any given individual sees or perceives what's happening. You talked about films. Um, let's talk about your book, The Night Stalker, as a possible film. Has anyone from Hollywood come knocking yet? I wrote a new book. I wrote a script. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. For The Night Stalker. It's going to be made to a feature film, by the oh, way. Oh, wow. You're kidding me. That's... Oh, I'm not kidding you. That's great. Congratulations. And uh, throughout the script, there's music. ACDC, but also the Rolling Stones. Wow, you're going to get permission to use the music? We will. That's incredible. ACDC, I can't imagine, would be on board with that. Which Stones song are you thinking about? Night Gambler. Oh, Midnight Rambler? Do you know the lines from the Stones, Night, Night Rambler? Uh, refresh my memory. Exactly what Ramirez did. And the last line is, I'll stick my knife right down your throat. Oh, That's man. the last line of the film. There's a long shot of... San Quentin Prison. Wow. That's the true. The last line is, I'll stick my knife right down your throat. Wow. When do you think this will be released? I don't know. We're still working on the script. we got to get financing. Right. But right. it's very, very good. Wow. What would you most like to see up there on the silver screen if it does get made? Honesty. You know, no, no gratuitous violence. Tell it like it is. Well, congratulations, Philip. That's that's quite an achievement. You're on a roll, man. Don't say that, but I am. Right. Out of curiosity, how do you make a film like this without gratuitous violence? There's a lot of violence in the story, but we're intent upon making the violence secondary to what's happening. But a movie like Friday the 13th and Halloween and Psycho, the checklist, for the most part, it's innocent stuff. Yeah. But you get a certain type. They see that. They get a hard on. They think that's okay. Right. They're encouraged. And they quietly go out and they do terrible things. Right. Out of curiosity, how did The Night Stalker do for you? It was your first nonfiction attempt uh, that hit shelves back in 1996. Well, did it, how did it change your career at all? You know, it's like... When I wrote The Night Stalker, I always felt, as I was writing it, that it would be a big book, that it would have long life, that it might change the way people see the world. I hoped women would start locking their doors and windows. I hoped that they'd be aware of what was around them. Look behind them. Who's in your space? Who's within a 10-foot circle? I hope a woman like Mabel Bell would lock their doors. The stalker walked in her house, and the door was open. Right. She said, I don't want to live like a prisoner in my own home. And thus, a monster was able to reach out, grab that doorknob, and it opened. Terrible. Having said that, the book came out, and... It ultimately, it did very well, but it wasn't like an explosion. It was like little by little by little. But still, we haven't sold the book overseas. In Japan, in Germany, in Holland, 
because they're afraid of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's unfair. And in a sense, they're editing what should be getting to the their public, their society. The book is a lot more than a man killing a woman. There's a whole gamut of information there. Right. And the novel went on to become a pretty successful audiobook, uh, which let's play a, an excerpt from uh, right here. He turned around and went back to the house. He wanted his car to be facing the direction he would flee when his work, his mission, was done. He got out, careful not to slam the door, and walked to Mabel's front door. As always, he was wearing gloves and was not worried about fingerprints when he grabbed the doorknob, turned, and pushed. The door opened, and he slowly walked into the modest home, hunching down low, all coiled aggression. He let his eyes get used to the dark, took out a flashlight, and found his way to the bedrooms. He could readily see that the occupants of the house were not too well off, that there was little of monetary value, and it made him angry. He found Nettie Lang and quickly realized she was an elderly invalid. He then moved to Ma Bell's room and saw her asleep in bed. He searched the rest of the house and realized he'd come to the wrong place. There were no young women and there was nothing much to steal. Then he used a piece of the electrical cord from a clock near the bed to bind her hands behind her back tightly. The clock dropped to the floor, stopped at 12.06 a.m. He proceeded to Ma Bell's room, not realizing he had stepped on the clock and left a bloody shoe print. Calling on Satan to watch what he was about to do. It's a matter of, as an example, the, the police weren't cooperating with one another. That enabled the stalker. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, people weren't locking their, their doors, closing their windows. That enabled the stalker. What I'm saying essentially is that will enable a criminal. And we need to learn from our mistakes, not repeat them. Right. What is the end result? People being murdered. It's important. It's not a matter of avoiding a cold, doing better in school, getting drunks off the road. It's a matter of diminishing the potential of those that would kill us gleefully. As far as his fate, the judge who upheld Ramirez's 19 death sentences remarked that his deeds exhibited, quote, cruelty, callousness, and viciousness beyond any human understanding, end quote. For someone who never expressed any remorse for his crimes, what is his reality right now? Today, Ramirez is on San Quentin's death row. He's locked up. 24 hours a day. A couple of hours a week, they let him out of his cage and he goes to the yard. His reality is that sentence. His reality is San Quentin's, well, now it's lethal injection. Um, he has no regrets. He has no remorse. The only thing he's sorry about is that he got caught. And that's it. Man, well, death seems to be a reoccurring theme for you in your childhood, in your work, and now you're fighting this terrible disease bound to a wheelchair, hooked up to a respirator. Um, 
I guess you have to be super comfortable to be enveloped with so much pain, violence, and death. But we want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview with us. I, I know it wasn't easy to talk. Well, you know, people have said to me that, that I, I, I'm obsessed with murder. I am gravitated to it. I write about it so extensively. My writing about it so extensively indicates something. And I'm here to say, and my childhood. My childhood, I had no control over. I was born where I was born, and I had no choice. The moment I had a choice, I left. I was born and raised in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, what I call mafia, though, ground zero for the mafia. When I was just 17 years old, I was out of there. But I took with me lessons. And a lot of the lessons involve violence. Violence to me as an adult doesn't mean what it means to somebody brought up in Connecticut. But by the same token, I'll go anywhere and not be frightened. I'll walk down any dark street and really not be frightened. In fact, I might be carrying a knife and I'll use it. I'm not, I'll use it not because I'm looking to use it or I want to use it. I'm trying to fit a mold. I'll use it to protect myself when I'm confronted. If the night stalker came in my bedroom window, I would have killed him. Would not have killed me. I can guarantee that. For sure. For me, none of this is part of my life. My, my, my life is completely separate. When I started writing this stuff, I knew I had to separate it. Otherwise, I was fucked. I'd be drinking, I'd be using drugs excessively. I'd be doing the things that have happened to writers that work with this material, to cops. Cops have a high rate of suicide because the dark side of human nature all the time can become very wearing. Truman Capote drank himself into oblivion. A lot of people say because his book in Cold Blood. So when I put down the pen, it's over. I don't think about it. I don't talk about it. It's not part of my dreams. It's not part of my life. Ever. That's great. Never. I won't allow it to be. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Put a lot out of me. Uh, and, and for sharing the stories with ACDC Beyond the Thunder. And, and since you're such a wordsmith, Philip, we, we have to ask you the final question, which is, if you had to describe ACDC in just one word, can you do it? ACDC in one word. Right on. ACDC Beyond the Thunder theme song, Trailer Trash, written and performed by Gannon Arnold. VO Talent by Bruce Jacobson. Cinematography and sound recording by Greg Ferguson. Edited and mixed by Eric Keel. Written, directed, and hosted by Kurt Squires. Produced by Greg Ferguson, Eric Keel, and Kurt Squires. ACDC Beyond the Thunder is a Squires LLC current motion production. Copyright Beyond the Thunder podcast. All rights reserved. This has been a Nat Attack presentation. Jazz button and nana.